The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. I'm Pastor Ray Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel. I want to share a story with you today. The Babylonian Empire had fallen to the Persians and the Medes, and now they ruled. And there was a king, Xerxes. History tells us he was an extremely wicked man in every respect. Now, please, as I share this story with you, don't think about this story in the 
framework of the Christian faith. Don't think about this story in the framework of our culture. Our culture is spread over with civilization, with norms that came out of the uh, Christian faith and the Jewish faith, the Judeo-Christian ethic, that subdued and now subdues many of the wicked characteristics of the human heart. Now, we're watching in America as that Judeo-Christian ethic is shoved aside, and now every wicked thing is beginning to sprout up in America. Homosexuality, uh, transgenderism, uh, stealing, lying, fornication, Every kind of wicked thing is beginning to emerge, and America is moving into an increasingly pagan culture. But that's not what this story is about. It's also not about the battle, the the fight that is very current, both in the church and in the culture, over the difference between men and women the feminism movement. It's alive and well in the Christian church. That's not what this story is about. I want you to see this story of Esther as both a parable and a prophecy. It is cast in the midst of this rule of Xerxes where he is so passionate and so power-hungry and so utterly evil, and yet he is the Lord over the Jewish people who have the attention of God. They were cast out of their city. It was burned and destroyed by the Babylonians because of their wickedness, and so now they must serve a wicked king. But in the midst of all of that, trauma. It's recorded that Queen Vashti would, in history, it's recorded that Queen Vashti would make the Jewish women, her servants, serve in the nude in order to shame them. Many things were done. Uh, Jewish people laboring in the hot sun as slaves. I mean, this was a very difficult time for Jewish people for all slaves. And so we come to the book of Esther and we can bring into it many different kinds of meanings that are our meanings, that are are not found in the scripture, that are simply like making Vashti the, the heroine of the feminist movement in the church simply wrong. We can't do that. So let me share this story with you and we'll stop as we go and and we'll talk about it. But first I'd like to pray. Lord, we want to understand both the parable and the prophecy of the book of Esther. We ask you to please come and open our hearts and our minds that we could understand bringing conviction to our hearts regarding 
how we walk with you because you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, Lord, would you uncover for us both your kindness and your grace and your mercy and your judgment. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Well, now it came to pass in the days of Xerxes or Azurias, they're the same person, who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. Um, Literally, he ruled over the entire then-known world. He had a navy that was incredibly large and incredibly powerful, as well as foot soldiers. He had all the modern implements of war for that day. In those days when King Azarias sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign he made a feast for all of his officials and servants. The powers of the Persian and the Medo Empire. The nobles and the princes of the provinces came before him, and he showed them his riches, his glorious kingdom, and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all, that's six months. So we have a great feast being spread by this very wealthy, powerful king, the most powerful king in the world, the number one in the world, the emperor. He was in charge. If he said you die, you die. If he said you live, you live. He held total control so for six months he's giving this wonderful feast when these days were completed the king made a a feast lasting seven days for all of the people who were present in Shushan the citadel from the great to the small in the court of the garden of the king's palace Now here's the description of this beautiful place. There were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars and the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise and white and black marble and they served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance according to the generosity of the king. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory, for so the king had ordered all the officials of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. Now we find a culture, both here described in the scripture and extra-biblical sources, historical sources, that tell us that this man was incredibly powerful and incredible, incredibly wealthy. And he holds captive God's people. Now, we're going to see in the prophecy how God moves the hearts of men and women to accomplish his will, 
to protect his people. The prophecy is that God will order each part of your life if you will surrender to him. Remember the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And the, and the Greek word is the same word we get generator from. When we pray that prayer, we are asking God to generate the electricity, the power, the, the might to rearrange our lives in accordance with his will. We declare the lordship of Jesus over everything about us, about our walk, about our work. We declare the the lordship of Jesus totally and completely over our hearts, over our actions, over our money, our family, our children, our work. Everything is, we ask the will of God to be done as it's done in heaven. So we're asking him to generate. Well, this is the prophecy that is going to teach us. Yes, this is how God moves, even in the hearts of the most powerful and wicked people of the world to accomplish his will. Do you think God is not moving in America, in the heart of Donald Trump and others to bring about the final crisis that will usher in the kingdom of God for eternity? Nothing is happening by chance. God sees it all, and he has his plan, and the prophecy in Revelation that we know who wins. We've read the last chapter. Now, this king had a queen and her name was Vashti. Now on the seventh day when the heart of the king was merry with wine, that is, when he was drunk, he had his seven eunuchs who served in his presence go to Queen Vashti. She is also throwing a big party not in her house, but in the palace, in the king's palace. And they are ordered to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown, in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials. Now there's some sources that suggest that the king was ordering Queen Vashti to show up in the nude with just the queen's crown on and that she wouldn't come because she had boils or some kind of sore on her skin. I don't know what happened there and it really doesn't matter and I'm not going to go down that road. I want to stick with what the scriptures say. They say that the king ordered her to come including her royal crown in order to show the beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. So here's this beautiful queen. She is only allowed to go 
to Azarias, the king, when he commands. If you go when you are not commanded, you die. So he holds absolute power. He has now ordered the queen to come before him. Verse 12, this is Esther 1, verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious and his anger burned within him. Now, this is why I say some today want to declare that King Vashti is the hero of the feminist movement, telling a man where he can get off, refusing his orders. I don't want us to go there because this is a totally different culture, a totally different time. In Jesus, the man and the woman who are serious Christians who are married one to another, They are equal before Jesus. They are both children of God. They have different functions. And the male has a leadership function in his home. But he does not have a kingly function in his home. He's not the dictator. He is the servant leader. Queen Vashti refuses to come and the king is angry. He is shamed before all of his military leaders and his servants, all of the people in Shushan. He is utterly shamed because this beautiful queen has totally refused to obey his order. So the king said to the wise men who understood the times, He said, uh, let me see if I can find it. He brought the seven princes, the highest ranking in the kingdom, and he said, what shall we do to Queen Vashti? According to the law, because she did not obey the command of King Azarias. So he's now asking for a legal solution to the problem of rebellion in his kingdom. Literally, Queen Vashti is his property, as is every other citizen of this wicked and sinful nation. And he wants to know, okay, what is the legal ramification? Now, it doesn't say in the scripture, but we know from extra-biblical sources that King Azarias and Vashti had a son. But now, one of the wise men, one of the seven highest princes, answers before the king and the princes, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in the province of King Azarias. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women, so they will despise their husbands in their eyes when they report that King Azarias commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she did not come. This very day the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that they've heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus they will be 
there will be excessive contempt and wrath. So they're talking about a cultural phenomenon. This is not an argument for women's rights. It's a legal situation. And what is his solution? Well, they recommend let a royal decree go forth from him, that is the king, and let it be recorded in the law of the Persians and the Medes, so that it will not be altered, that Vashti shall come no more before King Azurias, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. When the king's decree, which he will make, is proclaimed throughout all his empire, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. And the reply pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of this servant. And when he sent letters to all the king's province, to each province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be master of his own house and speak in the language of his own people. Well, now let's be clear. The king is the king. He has the right to order Vashti to come before him. She does not have the right to say no. And he could have had her executed. But I think he loved Vashti. He had a child by her. He is shamed. Remember, we're talking about a people who have no Judeo-Christian ethic. There is no there is no civilization as we know it in this Medo-Persian empire. There is cruelty beyond belief. There is murder and mayhem beyond belief. There is fornication. There is worship of false gods. There is adultery. There is every kind of wickedness flows in this culture. There is excessive pride. There is quick fuse to burn and violence to be done. This is a very raw, wicked culture. And this is where God's people find themselves. Without power, being punished for their sin against their God. The whip of God is on their back. If any of you doubt that God will do such things, read carefully Hebrews, the 12th chapter. God will still scourge you today if you walk in disobedience with him. God put his people in this position under this king as punishment that they would learn what it was like to serve a wicked king instead of a godly king. They turned away from the God of heaven. And now they are paying the price by serving a wicked, cruel, a wicked, cruel king. Now, chapter 2. After these things had all happened, this was on the last day of the seven-day banquet. 
Everybody has honored the king. Everybody has fawned over him. He has shown off all of his glory and power and might. He remembers Vashti. He remembers what she's done. And he remembers what has been decreed against her. And he cannot reverse that decree. That was one of the decrees, laws in the Medo-Persian Empire. Once the king decreed something, he could not back it out. So the king's servants say to him, this is chapter 2, verse 2, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the province of his kingdom, that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan the citadel into the women's quarters under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let beauty preparations be given them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this thing pleased the king. And so he gave those orders. So what we have now is a great gathering of beautiful women. I don't know how many, but it's a beauty contest. But it's more than a beauty contest. It's also a contest to see who can please this king. Now, he does not want another Vashti. He doesn't want a woman who is going to disobey his orders and stand up against him. He wants someone who will walk with him, who will be a a splendid piece of jewelry for his glory. Now, that's not what women are. This is utterly foolish and wrong and wicked on his part. But he has the power, and he has no he has no compunction about using men or women. So in the citadel of Shushan, there was a Jewish man by the name of Mordecai. He was an older man. This man was a, a person who had come from from Babylon, from Jerusalem, in his family. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives. He was the direct descendant. And so he finds himself in this place that he's lived all of his life now, always praying toward Jerusalem, where the temple had been, Now, Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, so she is a cousin. For she had neither father nor mother. The the parents had both been killed. I don't know how, but they were gone. And this young woman was lovely and beautiful, and he did not want her to be taken captive as a slave. So when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. He adopted her as his daughter. Now, Hadessa is his heart's desire. He loves her. 
she is his precious daughter. He is desperately concerned for her welfare. He wants things to go well for her. He doesn't want her to be married off to some pagan man or made a slave. This is chapter 2, verse 8. So it was when the king's command and decree were heard, and many young women were gathered at Shushan, the citadel, under the custody of Higai, that Esther also was taken into the king's palace, into the care of Hegai, the custodian of the women. Now, at every perspective, as we look at this now, it is a desperate, how shall I put it? Dangerous, critical position that the more Mordecai loves this daughter and she's stolen now from him and she's put in the harem. Now the harem is a very dangerous place. There are many women in the harem and they're all fighting for some kind of power and authority with all kinds of plots going on in the harem. They're servants in the house and she can never leave. She is bound there. Once brought into the harem, she has no more freedom. She is a slave in the harem. She is there at the king's pleasure. So she can't travel. She can't go back to her native land of Israel. She is now a captive. But as she comes into this place, she does not have a bitter heart. She doesn't have a bitter heart because she serves the living God of heaven. And she has declared the Lord God over her, as has Mordecai. Now, this young woman, Esther, as she is going to be named, pleased very much the chief custodian of the women, and she obtained his favor. Now, it was the rule that the women being brought in had to be given one year of beauty treatments. And he very quickly, granting her favor because of her beauty and because of her demure personality, he quickly began to give beauty preparations to her and also an allowance and then seven choice maidservants or slaves in the house of the king were provided for her from the king's palace. And he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. What an incredible miracle! This man, hard, cynical, pagan, heathen, a eunuch at the service of the king and he serves now in the house of the women caring for the king's women 
grants her favor. Was that accidental? No. The parable is that in every situation, as this story unfolds, God's invisible hand is moving to bring about protection for his people. And he's moving the pieces, the people, into place who can best thwart the demonic attack of Satan that is going to come against the Jewish people to try to destroy them. I don't know how to talk about this very well, but some of you will think I'm crazy. But I have in the past had wild dreams of a very powerful man with a beard who was coming to kill me, who was coming to kill my wife. And we would fight, and I would awaken. I've learned, not through Scripture, but just learned in the Spirit, that the devil will come as the strong man. I was uh, looking at pictures of Baal, the man Baal, the God of the Old Testament that continually troubled the children of Israel, the ruler, they thought, of prosperity, of money. I saw his picture down at one of the places, the Congressional Library, and it was the picture of the man that I'd been seeing in my dream. And I learned that when I see that man and he's coming, he's going to try to destroy me. And I must quickly go to the prayer closet and do the spiritual warfare necessary to block him. This is not on dream interpretation, but often I've found when I've dreamed of a serpent coming, it is the devil himself, and I'm being warned in the spirit, intercede against him that he could not come and do harm to you or to God's people. I want you to understand, Satan is real. He hates you if you are a follower of Jesus, and he intends to kill you, to destroy you. And if there are open doors in your life where he can come, he will come. If your house is empty of the Holy Spirit, and you've somehow, in becoming a Christian, have become clean, the scriptures say, Jesus said, he's going to come back with seven more demons. And you will be in worse condition than you, than you were before you became a Christian. We need to be aware of the deceit of Satan and his attacks against us. And understand from this incredible prophecy parable 
that God is involved in the most minute details to arrange a defense for you against the demonic powers that will come in all kinds of ways to try to rip away your finances, rip away your children, destroy your family, break your marriage, make you sick, kill your children, the demons of hell want to come and do all of that and the only thing that stands between them and you is the blood of jesus christ and you must be prepared to understand that you're not just living in a wonderful place and everything is coming up roses you have to understand you live in a war zone and in that war zone satan is active and powerful a lion roaming about seeking whom he may devour and he'd like you to be his next meal and the only way you can be protected is by the blood of jesus christ you can only defeat the enemy when you are in jesus locative in positionally in jesus in reality in jesus If you are outside of Jesus, you are outside of the protective purview of the living God of heaven. And you are there to be attacked and destroyed. Now, he doesn't go after his children part of the time. And part of the time, like Robin Williams, the the movie actor and the, the comedian, who finally committed suicide because the demon voices grew so insistent and so loud in his heart, he'd made a deal with the devil and he became so despondent. He killed himself and the devil was happy. He got him. Well, I want you to see the incredible power of god now i've given xerxes the recognition that he was the great potentate on the earth he ruled but i want to tell you there's one who's more powerful and he is the eternal god of heaven and earth and he is more powerful than any potentate on this earth He's more powerful than President of the United States. He's more powerful than Mr. Putin in Russia or the ruler of China or North Korea. Our God rules. He is the Almighty and Jesus is his name. Now, they had to complete 12 months of preparation. These 12 months were with oil of myrrh, six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. Now, all of this sounds very pleasant and nice, but believe me, it was not. The word used here is for scraping the skin was scraped, buffed. The bitters were given to purify the insides, to clear the skin. 
to buff the skin. It was a rigorous regime to beautify a woman, to make her ready for the king. She had to be taught how to dress, how to walk, how to hold herself. She had to be taught how to keep her body clean. Remember, she was coming out of poverty. She had no access to the beautiful baths and the treatments, the beauty treatments. She had no access to that. But now, for one year, she goes through the intense process. Now, I want to say just one thing on the side. Jesus puts us through a beauty preparation also. And he scrapes our skin. And he buffs us. He drills. He cleanses inside and out. He wants to sanctify us. Sounds better, doesn't it, to say he gives us beauty treatments sanctify us make us holy oh believe me that's a very real process and it takes time when we are assigned that process we are then in the school of the holy spirit when we surrender our will to the lord jesus he puts us in that school and he begins to buff us out to scrape us to use scrubs. It's not all pleasant. So they prepared each young woman to go to the king. And she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the king's palace. In other words, they had racks of clothing. She could choose the gown the shoes she could choose the wrap the jewelry she could do her hair any way she wanted to do it and then she was sent to the king's palace and this is after a year of being taught how to walk how to dress how to apply makeup and perfume in the evening she would go to the king Now, history tells us that this king held wild parties at night, that he had all of the dancing girls, that he had all of the show with the music and the plays. Well, she would go to him. And in the morning, after sleeping with him, she'd be returned to the second house of the women, to the custody of the king's eunuch who kept all of the concubines. So now she is a concubine. She is considered married to the king because they have had sex. She would not go to the king again unless the king delighted in her and called her by name. So there was one night And then you became a concubine. 
and you cared for the palace. Now, I'd like to look with you at a passage of Scripture, and we'll continue this story uh, later, but not today. But I want to take you to the book of Romans, the eighth chapter. I'll begin with verse 12. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So here he's describing the beauty treatment. Putting to death the misdeeds of the body. This is not just spiritual. It means you turn from fornication. Now, I fear that many of you who listen to this broadcast are single and you hook up with men or women as you please. It's rampant even in the body of Christ today. I know of of people who call themselves Christians who go to church every Sunday or every Saturday, but they're still caught totally in fornication and pornography. We need to understand that we are serving a potentate more powerful than Xerxes. That we must go through the beauty treatments of the Holy Spirit and put to death the misdeeds of the body. Because if you are led by the Spirit of God, you are a son of God. Romans 8 verse 15, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received a spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. It's the familiar, it's, it's Daddy. We cry, Daddy. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we might also share in his glory. What sufferings is he speaking about? Well, there's the suffering of persecution, but most of us don't have that suffering. What suffering do we have? We have the suffering of turning away from every human inclination in our heart and serving the Most High God, of giving our lives for the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. That is, we live under the royal authority of the Almighty King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We don't live by our own standard. We don't say no to the King. He calls us to live before Him. He calls us to walk with Him. He calls us to be faithful to him. 
I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. What sufferings? He's speaking of the suffering of teaching the gospel and traveling everywhere, not having a home to rest in, not having a wife. But he is suffering because he is going everywhere at all expense teaching the gospel of Jesus, being beaten with rods, being stoned, attempts to murder him, being put in shackles, sitting in prison, being chained to Roman soldiers. This man has suffered for the kingdom of God, involved in shipwrecks. What suffering have you had because you're a follower of Jesus Christ? Most of us have had it pretty cushy. And the suffering that we've endured has been out of our own sin. We're called to suffer because we put that sin away and we live now for Jesus Christ. We serve a king who is honorable, who is holy, who is totally unlike Xerxes who is utterly different than the wicked potentate. It says the the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from the bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. I was sitting at my kitchen table, my breakfast table, and I was looking out the window, and we have food for the birds on the back patio, and four or five doves were there along with cardinals and red-headed woodpecker, a downy woodpecker, These birds, a whole menagerie of beautiful birds were out there eating when suddenly out of the sky swooped a hawk and grabbed with his talons one of those beautiful doves. The feathers flew and quick as a flash he carried that that struggling little bird, that morning dove who coos so beautifully He carried it off into the woods where he ate it. Well, what trauma. I sat there shocked. I know this happens. I'm not a stranger to the harshness of nature. I know about the survival of the fittest. Paul is saying that's not how the heavens are going to be. In heaven, there's not going to be an attack by a by a hawk on a little dove. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Then verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. So God is working in the midst of this wicked earth, violent and evil. He's working in the midst of this for the good of you and me who serve him. 
and he has worked out the good in this case with Esther, and we're going to deal with this in great detail. But here he has brought Esther into what seems to be an absolute dead end. Slavery. Removing her from her uncle's house. It seems to be everything's over for her, and she's going to be destined to be desolate. But God's hand is moving. He is bringing forth his glory. I don't care what the circumstances of your life are today. You might be in trauma. You might be sick. You might be dying. But in the midst of all of that, I want you to know Romans, the eighth chapter. I want you to know that God's hand is in your life. If you have submitted to him and his glory will be revealed. Well, you've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. I'd like to invite you to please, we're at the end of the month. We are right now, let me see if I can find it quickly, $1,540 short of having what we need to cover the radio bill with Waiva this month. Would you help me with that? You can write to me at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. My brother, my sister, know that God has not deserted you. Don't be angry about the beauty treatments he's putting you through. Trust him. He will carry you through. Thank you for listening. Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. God bless you. I love you. I'll talk to you soon. Before the presence of His glory with great joy.